sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be getting an on-the-ground report concerning the referendums uh, uh, being held in uh, territories in Ukraine as it pertains to Russia. Also having an on-the-ground update on the run-up to the Brazilian elections happening later this week. Also be going to discussing some uh, recent developments in terms of uh, Egypt, the COP27, and what that means in this geopolitical moment. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined from Moscow by Sputnik News journalist and correspondent Wyatt Reed. Wyatt, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And uh, Wyatt, you're there in Moscow as uh, four territories uh, inside Ukraine have uh, started to hold uh, referendums about basically whether or not to become a part of Russia, to my understanding. And uh, I believe this is happening in places like Luhansk and Donetsk republics, uh, southern Kherson and Zaporozhia. And this is being reported, I feel, uh, in the mainstream media in the U.S. and the West, almost universally as, you know, fake, not legitimate, and uh, just another attempt of uh, the Russian government of trying to, you know, quote unquote, annex uh, or sort of deepen or continue its in- invasion of Ukraine. And so from your perspective, Wyatt, and just the conversations you've been having, I mean, what is the reality of what's happening there? And really, even if you'd like to begin on explaining about just what this vote is and what has people's responses been to it from your view? Absolutely. Well, people in those regions you laid out, Donetsk, Lugansk, Zaporozhia, and Kherson, have been going to the polls over the past several days. Uh, they are open until tomorrow, and they're being held uh, remotely uh, for large numbers of Ukrainian refugees who have uh, had to escape from uh, those regions and have come to resettle in Russia for the time being, at least. So we have uh, polling stations set up all over the region. Uh, I myself have been now to polling stations in Kherson, um, in Crimea, in Sevastopol, and uh, now today in Moscow as well. Um, and everywhere I've gone, I've been struck by the vast disparity between the way that these elections are being reported in Western media uh, and the way that they are perceived by the people who come to vote in them. Um, I have yet to see, for example, uh, you know, despite all these reports of supposed Russian soldiers pointing, you know, forcing people to vote in these at gunpoint or allegations of bribery, uh, no one has uh, indicated any of any of that to me. I have yet to see even the slightest piece of evidence that any of that is happening. Instead, uh, what uh, the experiences that are being relayed to me uh, relate to more is uh, is basically an overwhelming sense of relief. I spoke to one, um, you know, 80-something-year-old babushka today uh, who had tears in her eyes. She said it was wonderful that, uh, that this had happened, but uh, she and her daughter broke down crying while explaining why this was so significant. They had to end the interview and, and just left 
because they were in tears uh, describing the eight years of horror, the eight years of constant bombardment of being attacked and subject uh, to all manner of, of inhumane activities. Um, I, you know, I, I frankly don't even want to, to list some of them because they're so horrifying, the, the conduct uh, that's been taking place in the past eight years uh, with total impunity by members of, of Nazi formations like Azov, Tornado, Adar, uh, and others. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's, it's not a surprise that people uh, are expressing this to me, expressing this desire to become part of Russia. That's what this referendum is about, is about becoming part of Russia. Um, and it's not just the violence that people talk about, the, the physical attacks um, on, against their persons and against their families. It's the structural violence that comes with not having a functioning state Having a state, uh, you know, a, a regime, I would say, which uh, frankly treats that portion of the population as, as an enemy. Uh, that's certainly the feeling that many people they have. And so they are deprived of basic necessities, gas, uh, you know, uh, electricity, uh, streets, schools, uh, water, everything that, you know, uh, a, a modern uh, population uh, needs to survive and have some level of, of comfort. And uh, so people expressed quite a bit of hope that with these referendums uh, presumably going to pass, I believe they have now reached the 50% point in uh, almost in every region. I think uh, Kherson uh, and Zaporozhye may have been slower to reach that point than Donetsk and, and Lugansk, but I believe now that all uh, those territories have reached the 50% point. Uh, and I would expect that number to grow uh, significantly tomorrow, which is the day when uh, the most people are forecast to come out and vote. And, uh, you know, frankly, just, just how all these discussions that I've, I've been having with people, it's becoming increasingly clear to me, you know, why so many people are coming out and voting, uh, you know, in, in an election that the West describes as, as a foregone conclusion. Uh, it seems... Uh, pretty meaningful to to people here, despite all that. Yeah. And, you know, what you're describing, um, Wyatt, <clears throat> the experience of people in these provinces, obviously within the context of um, uh, the ongoing war in Ukraine uh, following Russia's uh, uh, invasion. And I mean, even the broader context, I would argue about uh how conditions have developed in Ukraine following the U.S.-backed coup in 2014. But that's an experience that has been completely invisibilized and erased from the consciousness and understanding of the people of the United States and in the West. I mean, that whole sector of his historical and contemporary context in terms of what's really happening is basically verboten. I mean, it's it's almost it's a forbidden topic to discuss and all that people are allowed to say the, the the parameters of the conversation around this have to stop at the uh, singular evil of the Russian government under uh, of Vladimir Putin and nothing else can be even considered and certainly not talked about. And so it, it's just clear that particularly we talk about the role of the media uh, uh, in all of this, that they're, in my opinion, culpable uh, for facilitating what a lot of these people are uh, 
uh, uh, experiencing and that why people may think they're taking a humanitarian stance with some of these narratives. In reality, they're just advocating for something that is really only beneficial to the interest of U.S. imperialism and U.S. capital and that in truth aren't uh, that beneficial for the actual people of Ukraine, who a lot of folks on this side of the world, you know, claim to care so much about. Well, exactly, Sean. And and look, the role of the media, as you as you correctly pointed out, it it's impossible to to overlook that when analyzing why things are the way they are right now. Uh, eight years ago, you were allowed to describe what happened in Maidan in Ukraine as uh, as a coup. Uh, number of mainstream publications would uh, would allow articles, opinion pieces. Uh, describing what was happening there accurately. You were allowed to talk about the fact that uh, there are official Nazi military formations integrated into the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, You were allowed to discuss that. You were allowed to discuss the role uh, that Ukraine has come to serve as an international melting pot, sort of, for fascist forces from all over the globe. All these things were frequently discussed in in a number of of newspapers where it was, uh, you know, uh, New York Times posted about things like this. The Guardian published a number of uh, correct op-eds. Um, but all of that changed, of course, on February 24th, uh, when truth in this matter really became a casualty to this new Cold War that uh, the United States via NATO is is pursuing uh, with Russia, with the money of working people in the United States and in Europe, and with the blood of the Ukrainian people. The ultimate goal here, obviously, is not to uh, bring democracy to Ukraine, not to liberate people from the evils of Vladimir Putin. The goal is to sell as many weapons as possible and to take over a highly lucrative energy market in Europe from the Russians and give it to uh, the United States uh, and and other uh, pro you know Western providers. So that's really you know that's what's behind all this. But you can't say that anymore. You're not even allowed to report freely uh, from Ukraine. If you say something that offends them, they will put you on this uh, Mirotvoretz kill list. Mirotvoretz meaning in Ukrainian peacemaker. Obviously, uh, an incredibly dystopic name, um, very, very dark. That's uh, a list that a lot of us observers here are expecting uh, to be put on after having come here and and witnessed these elections. Uh, I've met a number of people who are on it here, and uh, I'm sure that number will continue to grow. But that's really been the attitude uh, that uh, that's, that's prevailed um, in the West, uh, especially since the beginning of this special military operation. Anybody uh, who really dissents from that line is uh, persona non grata. They're driven off the air. Uh, they are pilloried in the media. I believe Roger Waters has just got a number of hit pieces from mainstream media outlets uh, for his views on the conflict in Ukraine. Um, and, of course, no mainstream media journalist will touch it because uh, it's, 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 uh, it's like a new third rail in American politics. It's... Uh, somehow signals this disloyalty to the to the ruling class. And, you know, if you talk about not hating Russians sufficiently, uh, you're suspect, too. And, uh, you know, I, all of this obviously is, is very alarming. And um, it really sort of undermines quite a bit of the, the moral superiority that many Western nations uh, like to purport to have. 
uh, like to act as though they're 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 better than the West, better than Russia and China, because we, we have things like freedom of speech. And uh, I think really the events of the past few months have, have proved that that uh, much of that is a lie, that our concept of free speech uh, really only applies insofar as it's not inconveniencing the powers to be. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, th- this kill list uh, issue that you're speaking to, um, Wyatt, it, it definitely is very dark. And it's also something that we don't really see mentioned in mainstream coverage in the U.S. and the West. And I believe uh, Roger Waters that you mentioned is on that list. Even uh, Faina Savinkova, a 13 year old girl who's a resident of the Lugansk Republic, was placed on the list after appealing to the U.N. for basically to end this war that she's been living through over the last eight years. A number of journalists and uh, other advocates and uh, uh, activists are on this list as well. But not a peep, not a peep from uh, the the, the U.S., the shining light on the hill that claims to care so much about, you know, human rights and democracy about just this issue because, you know, it, it problematizes this narrative of the, you know, angelic Ukrainian government versus the demonic Russian government, when in reality, there's just been a completely, I'm going to say imbalanced, just as a, a gross understatement in terms of how this whole war has been covered. But the broader thread there for me, Wyatt, is just the hypocrisy around the U.S. and the West and the so-called uh, rules-based international order as it pertained to this. I mean, we've seen uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, referencing the issue of Russian Ukraine, saying, quote, no nation can withdraw the borders of another by force, when in truth, the U.S. fully supports that policy if it's in their own interest and certainly will support their uh, junior partners and vassal and client states if they want to do that. But since there's just layers of obfuscation, both in terms of not only this specific issue with uh, the war in Ukraine, but also with a U.S. foreign policy in general, to where this sort of thing is uh, allowed to be propagated without any real sort of uh, uh, accountability or certainly not the so-called journalists uh, in this part of the world trying to point it out. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, as ever with the U.S. as the world hegemon still, at least as of this moment, it's just that they're willing to weaponize and skew any narrative and even ignore and cover up their own uh, historic and ongoing crimes if it means that they can move forward with their imperial desires. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, if if Anthony Blinken really believes that uh, borders shouldn't be drawn by force, well, he can start by giving Texas back to Mexico, you know, the entirety (laughs) of or the American like West Coast it was all it was all annexed. It was all taken by force. Uh, the history of the United States is one of seizing territory by force everywhere. I mean, the the the, the U.S. attempted to topple half of the Middle East in our lifetimes by force. They were not doing so with handshakes and kisses and hugs. They were coming in and dropping bump, bunker busters and uh, annihilating whole villages sometimes, um, supposedly on accident, but. Uh, you know, this was just chalked up to uh, to so-called collateral damage. That this was just the inevitable reality of what it takes to keep the world in line. You know, for 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 the U.S. Secretary of State to now take this position that oh, we, how how dare somebody not respect international law? Well, it would be laughable if it wasn't so disturbing. And you know, this this the the one other thing I want to add about the threat to journalists isn't that this isn't an abstract 
thing. You know what I mean? This is happening right now. This we our our trips to different communities are uh, have to be scheduled almost uh, you know uh, as it's happening because we we need to take uh, precautions to prevent uh, any attempts from the Ukrainian regime at targeting members of our delegations. Uh, it seems that uh, one RT journalist was targeted two nights ago, uh, Murad Gazdiev. His hotel room was was uh, smashed apart by uh, Ukrainian artillery. His uh, cameraman, uh, and also in the room, was buried in rubble. Uh, he had to fish out his friends and colleagues from rubble. Uh, people died. And, uh, you know, this is uh, kind of a normal occurrence. This is not the first person to be targeted. We know uh, there was a terrorist attack that took the life of Daria Dugina. And um, I expect that such attacks will continue. Uh, but, of course, we, we don't hear any denunciation of this in the West. The Italian journalist who was killed in 2014, Andrea Rocelli, who was killed by the Ukrainian regime, uh, his killer eventually walked free in an Italian court. And, uh, you know, I think this is kind of a, the same uh, thread that, that, that we're speaking to is basically just uh, it's a it's a new it's a new world order, according to the United States. This this rules based international order where uh, I make the rules and you take the orders. Uh, but uh, people in Russia and China, uh, rest of the world don't seem to be willing to play ball. And it's uh, maybe time that uh, they're able to to take their ball and go home and start a new game. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, all the things you've been describing, Wyatt, I mean, the, the, the danger, the threats of violence, what people are actually going through on the ground there in the Ukraine as this, excuse me, as this war continues. I mean, I think it really does just show uh, uh, yet again how we really are in uh, an information war as it pertains to this conflict and indeed have been from the very beginning. I mean, the fact that uh, basically we're not allowed to entertain anything that happened before February 24th, 2022, I think uh, uh, points to that. And so as things continue to unfold, I just think it's going to be so important that we continue to have uh, this view and this perspective from outside uh, the, the stifling confines of a U.S. mainstream media to give a more realistic and uh, a fuller picture of what's actually happening in the world so that not only can we have a better assessment, so but also so that we as progressive minded people can know how we're supposed to operate here inside the imperial core uh, to really uh, uh, appeal to this government and to struggle against it for uh, the changes that need to be made both uh, within and outside the borders of this nation, you know? Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's a difficult moment, you know, um, and I, I wish I, I was a little bit more optimistic in terms of the future of uh, our ability to have conversations like this. We know that uh, RT America was forced to shut down. Uh, we at, at Sputnik were a little luckier. We uh, managed to keep things going. We know uh, that, uh, I mean, just, just even on social media, for example, uh, within a month or so of, of military operations starting in February, I, I was labeled a Russian state-affiliated media on Twitter. And, you know, this this is used to basically to destroy me in the algorithms and make it so that any video I post gets about 10 percent of what it should get. You know, I have videos that I post that have more likes than views now, which just defies 
basic logic, but you know, this is kind of the new reality where just anybody who's, who's outside of this is going to get jammed into a little corner. Uh, not, and you know, we, we, we still have a government that wants to pretend, uh, that free speech is, is, uh, is a real principle that applies today. Um, so they get the big techs, they offload this stuff, uh, to, to the big tech companies, uh, and they get them to do their dirty work for them. So they have them come in and censor us, uh, so that they don't have to, so that they can keep their hands clean. Um, but you know, at this point, it's 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 hard to say there's any real distinction between these these tech companies and the government. And um, you know, for me, I, I this is why I'm I'm trying to to transfer away to programs uh, to platforms like Telegram. I'm trying to move you know uh, away to to a different uh, platforms because uh, I think uh, you know it's it's the time is not very far off from uh, when people like yourself and myself are declared persona non grata, and we are finally kind of kicked off the airwaves. Yeah, well, we thank you so much, Wyatt, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the run-up to the upcoming elections in Brazil. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today from Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, by Camila Escalante, a reporter and founding editor of Calcitune News. Camila, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And uh, Camila, uh, Brazil is set to head to the polls at the end of this week to choose their next president, uh, of course, currently under the leadership of a uh, far right uh, president, Jair Bolsonaro. And uh, one of the major uh, developments in Brazilian politics in the recent period has been the candidacy of former Brazilian president Lula da Silva, a popular figure who was uh, uh, impressed prison for a period on what uh, has been revealed to basically be uh, trumped up charges. And, you know, the polls seem to suggest that um, Lula very well could uh, win this election in the first round, although, of course, all of this still remains to be seen and is coming under the shadow, I think, of a number of threats from Bolsonaro about what may happen if things don't go his way. But since you're on the ground there, Camille, I'm just wondering what is uh, the energy like uh, what have uh, people been saying? What are they concerned with? Uh, just how have things been unfolding there as the election draws near? Well, as you said, there have been a number of polls that have come out recently uh, that show that Lula da Silva, the former president, is far ahead of all the other candidates and actually has a greater uh, sum of the voter intention than all the other candidates combined. That being said, he does have to receive 50% of the vote plus one in order to win in this first round. And he's really stressing the importance right now of winning in the stress and in, in the uh, first round that uh, because, you know, 
the, the polls have also shown that he has a huge, massive chance of winning a landslide vote if this goes to a second round. However, I think both the Workers' Party, Lula's party, um, the candidate himself, and of course the Latin American left, knows how important it is to win decisively um, because of the, the risk that someone might try to come and undermine the result. As we've seen these threats by Bolsonaro, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the incumbent, and his supporters have been you know, making threats and trying to uh, cast doubt on the process as well as the electoral authorities and warn of you know, possible uh, you know, lack of transparency and try to raise, and they've been trying to raise doubts over the, over this process. So that being said, you know, Lula's really looking to, to just finish this uh, convincingly in one round. But as far as what we've been seeing here on the ground, you know, Jair Bolsonaro has had a couple of really large rallies in his favor, specifically on September 7th, which was Independence Day, where we saw really large crowds of people coming out to support him. But other than that, we've seen very little, almost nothing on the ground in terms of people mobilizing to support the incumbent. On the contrary, uh, you know, you might see some bumper stickers and a couple of people who are paid to hold flags out in the street. But overwhelmingly, what we're seeing on the ground, including in the Bolsonaro stronghold uh, states in the south of the country, is huge support for Lula da Silva. There is massive support in terms of rallies. We've seen uh, really big rallies in these uh, the state capitals of the south Brazil, where I was covering last week. And that's supposed to be known as right-wing conservative, uh, even evangelical and Christian areas. And we saw massive shows of support for Lula. Here in Sao Paulo, there have been... Um, We've seen these sort of carnival blocos where, uh, you know, they do these rehearsals every weekend, the carnival groups or bands. And these have kind of converted into Lula rallies as well. There have also been sort of like bicycle, I don't really know how, how, how to say it in English, but um, these sort of like bicycle walks and marathons and uh, just people taking over streets. And all of that has been uh, with their sort of Lula propaganda and campaign rally banner stickers and everything else. So it really feels all across the country. I've now been reporting in, I believe, five states since I, I arrived here, just overwhelming support for bringing back Lula. And we have to remember that he was elected twice previously. They also um, elected Dilma Rousseff, and they've been calling for his return for several years now. So it's not just a candidate that they want just because they hate Bolsonaro, but they know what his economic policies were and how they benefited the Brazilian people in those past uh, administrations. Yeah. And, you know, my feeling, uh, Camilla, because I tend to agree that, um, you know, Lula is not just a popular candidate, but someone who, you know, swaths of the Brazilian people have been trying to support and wanting back in power for some time. I mean, it gives me the feeling that this upcoming election in Brazil is something that could very well define the trajectory of the country and where it's going to go politically, uh, socially, and, and otherwise uh, sort of moving forward in this uh, uh, coming period. And it, it makes me wonder, you know, just who who is the base, if you will, 
of Lula da Silva's support? You know, what elements of uh, Brazil uh, do you think are sort of uh, rallying to his uh, campaign to support him and things like that? It's just, you know, which which part of Brazil do we see uh, coming out the hardest for Lula at this point? Well, the northeast of Brazil is known for being the PT or the Lula stronghold area. And this is, of course, a country that is over 50 percent of Afro-descendant background. Um, They're Afro-descendant Brazilians, black Brazilians, uh, you know, mixed race. And this is the area that comes out uh, in every election strongly in favor of this candidate. But that being the case, we're expecting to see um, a map was just released um, by some of the some of the different uh, media outlets that have been covering the polls. And based on one of the pollsters, uh, IPEC, it's called, um, they show all the different states of Brazil. And it's overwhelmingly red. In fact, the the number of um of states that were blue, blue representing Jair Bolsonaro, is just very few. It's something like two states, and and some of the states are even up for dispute. And it says it's split. Uh, one of those being a southern state that is you know known for being in favor of Jair Bolsonaro. So in terms of who is supporting, uh, you know this uh, this candidate, and of course his vice president, this presidential ticket, um, you know, the PT has a strong base of social movements, but we have to remember that this is also somewhat of a coalition of parties that are going to be supporting Lula. Um, his, uh, vice presidential pick is from another party as well. Uh, we have the PSOL, we have the PSDB, which is the, uh, Communist Party of Brazil um, and several other small parties. It's something like 12 parties that are actually going to be supporting Lula. Some of those people will, some of those parties will, of course, uh, have a place in his government if he is elected. But in terms of the social movements, we have, um, you know, the movements for housing, the movements for land, the movements against evictions, the movements against hunger, um, and, and several youth movements. But what's most important, I think, and kind of you know, the brand of Lula is he's one of the most important uh, union leaders in the history of the American continent, not only Brazil, but he was the founder of the CUT, uh, one of the founders of the CUT, which is the Central uh, Union of Brazil, the CUT. Um, and he's known, you know, his story is that he li- he lived in a rural, small, uh, humble area in Pernambuco in the Northeast, uh, you know, that ha- has had historically a high level of poverty. And because the conditions were so hard and they had no access to water, running water, electricity, and other basic necessities, they had to move here to Sao Paulo. Here in Sao Paulo, he began working, I believe, at the age of 14 in factories, including the Volkswagen factory here in Sao Bernardo de Campo to the south of Sao Paulo. And that's where he lost one of his fingers in an accident in the plant. And so he's known for leading a wild uh, historical wildcat strike. And it is the unions that have been supporting him all along throughout his political career. Today, he's going to be meeting with artists and intellectuals and other known personalities. He had a uh, he had a meeting, a meet and greet yesterday in Rio de Janeiro with uh, social media influencers. So it's all sorts of people who are coming out to back this candidate. But most importantly, of course, those unions and social movements and the Afro and indigenous groups. 
Yeah. And, you know, a moment ago, uh, Camille, you, you talked about how uh, the Latin American left is sort of viewing the situation inside Brazil. And uh, I wanted to ask how you situate the upcoming election in Brazil with uh, uh, other dynamics that we've been seeing inside Latin America that has, uh, uh, I think, lately produced a number of uh, progressive and left leaning governments coming into power. So how does Lula and Brazil factor into that? And why is Brazil an important country within the region? Well, it's extremely important because of its massive potential as an engine for an economic engine for an entire region. This is a country where, well, we have Lula saying that not only are we going to remove Brazil from the hunger map, it left the, the UN hunger map in 2014. Unfortunately, under these neoliberal governments, it has returned to that hunger map and people are facing, um, you know, massive inequality. They have, uh, you know, issues planning out their next meals um, and that sort of a thing. But they what what Lula wants to do is to start producing on a scale where they'll, they'll be massively exporting to countries like China um, and other countries overseas. This is hugely important, but also it's really important that, you know, when we have these alternative, uh, you know, countries and different um, economies and trade routes, really, we're looking at the possibility of being able to uh, go around the sort of sanctions regimes that we've seen imposed by the United States and Europe on countries like Venezuela. We've seen a very hostile, um, you know, policy towards or a relatively hostile policy, I would have to say, because despite uh, you know the le- the attempts of this failed Lima cartel against countries like Venezuela, you know that's all kind of melting away, and that has been a failed operation. But we're going to see even you know friendlier relations now between Brazil and this Workers Party's government, if they are to be elected, and neighboring Venezuela. And, you know, and friendlier relations with countries like Cuba and Nicaragua during, uh, you know, the end of Lula's years, he was actually um, establishing closer ties with Iran. That's also a very important partner for Latin America. Of course, Iran was the country that helped Venezuela uh, recover its oil sector almost single handedly. And that's why Venezuela is recovering right now. So we're looking at alternative economies and we're looking at more and more South-South cooperation and cooperation economically, uh, you know, trade-wise within our own region once we can get a huge power like, uh, you know, Brazil back on its feet with the policies that uh, that Lula has promised, including, you know, state control over resources, protection of the environment, but also, you know, exploiting the the resources, but for the benefit of the Brazilian people. Yeah. And I mean, even uh, making that connection from the regional to a uh, sort of the uh, geopolitical, I think is entirely appropriate. And, you know, I, I can't help but wonder, Camilla, when I think about Brazil and uh, the, the the idea of the country moving from an open reactionary uh, and bigot like Jair Bolsonaro to a uh, progressive like Lula and how the West and the United States would view that. And so I'm just curious, you know, what is the relationship with Washington and Brazil at this point? And what do you think a, a possible Lula presidency could mean for that relationship? 
Well, Jerry Bolsonaro had a much stronger relationship and a friendlier relationship, almost a good personal relationship with Donald Trump and that administration hasn't been as strong with uh, with the Democrats and Biden. But undoubtedly, the, the Biden administration would prefer to have, uh, you know, someone like Jerry Bolsonaro in power. They're very afraid. And so in recent weeks and months, we've seen numerous drills by Southcom, the Southern Command of the U.S. military, uh, that's largely based in countries like uh, Colombia and Brazil, uh, you know, carrying out these different drills, joint drills with, you know, the U.S. Uh, military forces and uh, Brazilian forces and other of these sort of U.S. satellite states have been sending their military for the training exercises as well. We even saw them here in Rio de Janeiro on Independence Day, as I said, on September 7th. I think the U.S. is, um, you know, they're very aware that they're going to be losing a strategic ally in some sense if Lula da Silva wins this election. And, you know, I, during Lula's administration, a lot of people saw this government as a sort of center-left social democratic alternative to the Bolivarian project of Hugo Chavez, a much softer version, a much pinker version, you know, not a revolutionary project as we were seeing in other countries like Cuba and Nicaragua. However, um, it still remains a threat. It remains a threat because, you know, they might be losing their foothold following the election we just saw in Colombia. In Colombia, he was very, Gustavo Petro, the now president of Colombia, was very much uh, running, you know, in the center and trying to appease a large section of the population. But as he's coming to power in the last few weeks, he's been implementing some very progressive measures, and he's been very friendly with both Cuba and Venezuela. And I think that the United States, Washington, would be very afraid to see that uh, take place here, where the PT would have an even friendlier relationship with those countries, but also that they might not be able to have free reign over Brazilian territory and use it as, um, you know, a base for more military and really NATO presence on our continent. Yeah. And, you know, from your perspective, Camila, how do you think progressive minded people in the U.S. and the West, uh, how do you think we should be viewing the upcoming election in Brazil in terms of the stakes, uh, first and foremost, for its people, but also what it could mean for the region and for these uh, uh, sort of uh, interstate, if you will, uh, these relations uh, and whatnot between country to country and how all of that plays out. And I mean, particularly as we continue to see how conditions, I mean, frankly, are worsening uh, here in the U.S., understanding the connection between a U.S. foreign policy and how it impacts people both inside and outside the borders of the U.S. But, I mean, uh, what do you think is sort of the eye that we should be having when we look towards uh, uh, the election in Brazil in terms of, you know, developing a kind of uh, a broader, even global uh, progressive movement, uh, critically addressing a number of the pressing material issues facing the world's uh, struggling people? You know what I mean? I know what you mean. That's a huge question. But we're entering a period of uncertainty right now in the world. Right now, you know, things have been very difficult for countries of our region, given the inflation and in prices, given how difficult it has been to get our hands on certain goods from overseas, particularly, you know, following the, the coronavirus, uh, you know, two years of lockdowns. And, you know, that whole period really harmed uh, primarily the 
you know, tourism sector, among other things, in the Caribbean, for example. Uh, you know, so this sort of, you know, for Brazil to have any sort of, you know, trade that could positively impact, for example, the ALBA countries or the countries of CARICOM would be extremely necessary right now. But also, you know, just in terms of, you know, how we should be thinking about this. Well, a lot of people have raised a number of issues and criticisms that that were had both within Brazil and maybe outside of Brazil of Lula's former governments, um, you know, with regards to Brazil's uh, participation in the the UN occupation of Haiti, for example, and other, uh, you know, other other measures or things that were done or not done. I would say to, you know, to those people that that hasn't from what I can see, had any real impact and really doesn't, you know, change things in one way or the the other for, you know, for Brazilians now. Brazilians now are only talking about how they're supporting this candidacy as a, as a proactive vote. You know, they're being protagonists in, in doing so. It's not a vote against Bolsonaro and his bigoted, uh, you know, far-right project. Uh, necessarily. It's actually that they're focused on the issues of poverty alleviation, about wanting to strengthen their economy, fortify their economy amid everything that's going on in the conflict overseas. They want um, to end hunger and, you know, uh, kind of deal with these issues having to do with land um, and the disputes that are going on and uh, take care of the environment. They want to end the evictions. You know, right now there's a huge housing crisis here. There's a lot of homelessness. You can see it everywhere around the major urban centers and the, the unemployment, the lack of opportunity for young people. There's a lot of issues on the table right now. And so I think people aren't even in a position to think about all these different uh, criticisms about whether or not Lula is uh, revolutionary or not. Maybe he doesn't meet people's uh, communist meme standards. But, you know, people are really thinking about their material conditions right now, but they also want Brazil to be respected internationally and they want to see the the correct sort of participation in those international forums, those international uh, multilateral bodies uh, so that you know, this country can better position itself in the world and become a leader, like I said before, in this sort of new South-South arrangement. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Camilla, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the upcoming U.N. climate conference in Egypt and what that may mean for the African continent and the global south. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Abayomi Azikiwe, the editor of the Pan-African News Wire. Abayomi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for asking. 
Absolutely. And Abayomi, the United Nations Climate Conference, or the COP27, is scheduled to take place this year in Egypt from November 6th to the 20th. And I think uh, it's noteworthy that this conference will be held on the African continent at a time where there is just a number of uh, uh, cascading and interlocking um, uh, uh, challenges facing both the African continent, the global south, and the world. And so I was hoping you could sort of contextualize this upcoming COP27 meeting in November and uh, sort of the significance uh, both for the continent and other uh, uh, geopolitical concerns. Well, first of all, uh, it's important that this is uh, being held in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh uh, in Egypt, and it provides a different uh, basis uh, for viewing the problems uh, related to climate change. Africa has been uh, one of the most negatively impacted uh, regions uh, due uh, to uh, climate change, yet uh, they are probably one of the least uh, admitters of uh, CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions and other forms of uh, atmospheric and environmental pollutants. But what has happened uh, over the last several years, uh, we see the cyclones that have occurred, uh, for example, in Mozambique and Malawi, uh, has had impact on uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, Just earlier this year, there were tremendous floods in the KwaZulu-Natal uh, region near Durban, a very strategically located uh, port city in the Republic of South Africa. Right now in the Horn of Africa, uh, there's extreme uh, lack of rainfall, uh, there's drought, and this is causing uh, food deficits uh, that are threatening uh, famine-like conditions. And it appears as if uh, the Western industrialized countries are not really paying that much attention uh, to what is going on in Africa as it relates to climate change, as it relates to food deficits. Uh, They, of course, are more concerned about uh, waging a war, a proxy war against the Russian Federation in Eastern Europe and also to antagonize China in the Asia-Pacific region. But I think uh, there has been uh, several uh, meetings leading up uh, to the uh, 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 summit that will be taking place in November. Uh, These meetings uh, have been thorough discussions on the part of uh, African leaders and uh, government officials uh, about uh, what is needed uh, in this current period. If there's to be a shift uh, from uh, fossil fuels to more renewable forms of energy, uh, then the West is going to have to uh, help invest and subsidize uh, some of these uh, shifts. Uh, That issue came up uh, when President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa came to Washington, D.C. last week. And uh, he uh, was, of course, very adamant uh, in his engagement with uh, President Joe Biden and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, that Africa will need assistance uh, in regard uh, to implementing uh, these uh, proposals that have been put forward uh, by the uh, United Nations uh, Climate uh, Summits. So it's a very uh, transitional period that we're in right now uh, worldwide. And uh, with the economic uh, crisis deepening, uh, even in the Western capitalist countries, uh, it's going to have a negative impact as well on Africa and other geopolitical regions. 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think it's noteworthy um, that this pre-conference meeting that you're uh, discussing, uh, you know, took place, you know, earlier this month in Cairo. And I know some of those um, officials from these African Union member states, um, you know, criticized uh, Western governments for, you know, their role in exacerbating the climate issue. And this is something that we see, I think, across the global south, uh, whether it's the, uh, the, the African continent, Latin America, the Caribbean or what have you, is that we have have all these countries who in reality contribute very little to the climate issue but bear the brunt of its consequences. And so to me, Abayomi, I think it sort of shows a very important issue that is not basically ever highlighted, uh, at least in sort of a mainstream conventional political and media circles here in the U.S. and the West, and that's the direct connection between imperialism and climate change itself. I mean, the U.S. military machine, with with its 800-some-odd military bases and installations around the world, is perhaps the greatest contributor to pollution and things like this, but yet and still, we we don't really see it being challenged in any substantive way. Uh, in terms of this broader climate issue. And so it seems that the issue of climate change in a number of ways is also uh, an issue of imperialism and about how that fact will really have to be addressed if we're talking about having a critical solution to climate change. But the potential for the U.S. and the West to sort of just um, operate in that way or come to that conclusion themselves or take that kind of responsibility seems uh, doubtful, to say the very least. No, they're not going to uh, reach that conclusion on their own, uh, because if you look, uh, even under the Democratic Party administration of Joe Biden, uh, they have escalated uh, imperialist militarism uh, in various uh, geopolitical regions throughout the world. Uh, We know what is going on in Ukraine. Uh, They're sending weapons uh, every day uh, to continue the war there, uh, which is exacerbating Uh, the international uh, food crisis. Uh, We know uh, people who have done studies uh, that prove uh, that the Pentagon is the largest contributor uh, to pollution and to uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions. And we also know uh, that uh, the United States, uh, as they did in Glasgow, Scotland, last year, is only involved in these summits in order to uh, veto language uh, which they feel uh, would threaten uh, their hegemony in terms of the world uh, economic system. But there's a lot of pushback that is going on. Uh, it's, it's taking place among um, non-governmental organizations, uh, mass organizations, as well as many governments. Uh, you could even hear it uh, last week at the United Nations General Assembly, uh, 77th session uh, that took place in New York City. A number of governments criticized heavily uh, U.S. uh, foreign policy as it relates to climate and also as it relates to uh, militarism and economics. Yet you won't hear that uh, coming through the mainstream media uh, here in the United States. Uh, You'll hear uh, Joe Biden's speech uh, condemning uh, Russia, uh, saying that Russia is a major threat to world peace, but you won't hear uh, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov's speech. Uh, they did not um, cover, uh, by and large, the speech of uh, President Raisi of uh, Iran uh, and others, uh, people from Africa, uh, Asia, Latin America, Cuba, Venezuela, for example. Uh, these countries are still under fierce attack uh, on many levels. Uh, so you won't hear 
the actual objective coverage of what took place at the uh, United Nations General Assembly, and it will probably be the same situation uh, in November in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, the U.S. will attempt to dominate the discussion there and therefore uh, veto any language, any resolutions uh, that they feel uh, goes against their own uh, economic and political interests. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. And, you know, the more time goes on at Biomi, the more it's just clear that the war in Ukraine uh, that you mentioned a little earlier is still uh, perhaps the most uh, relevant uh, geopolitical issue uh, happening in the world right now, as it seems to have ripple effects all over the globe. And as you've mentioned, exacerbating uh, uh, issue of prices and fuel and food and all these sorts of things that are certainly um, being felt on the African continent and around the world as, uh, world as well, including uh, uh, in, in Europe, which stands to have uh, quite a cold winter coming up here very shortly uh, because of how those governments have been operating here lately and has also been what has sparked uh, protest uh, uh, inside those countries. And so, I mean, what do you think there's evidence is at Biomi about the sort of shifting uh, dynamics and relationships of uh, different countries, both on the African continent and elsewhere in this moment, as you know, U.S. imperialism appears to be, you know, on the decline. It does feel like uh, the seeds are being planted for a global situation to where U.S. hegemony is not the uh, dominant presence. Now, I don't think this is something that's going to happen tomorrow or the next day, but even still, it is clear that uh, uh, more and more countries uh, are operating certainly uh, within their own uh, national interest and looking for an alternative to U.S. hegemony, the the dictatorship of the dollar and things like that. And so how do you see uh, uh, these sort of dynamics between governments and nations uh, being reflected uh, within the context of this uh, COP27 meeting? It's very clear uh, that the United States uh, does not want the shift, uh, which is well underway, uh, from the unipolarity that they are the champions of to some type of multipolarity uh, in regard to international relations. Uh, we've seen uh, the advent of uh, many uh, multilateral organizations such as the uh, BRICS, summit, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Other countries are interested in joining uh, that organization. The non-aligned movement has been in existence since uh, the early 1960s. Uh, you have the Forum for China-Africa Cooperation. Uh, there's the Russia-Africa Summit, which is going to be meeting uh, later on this year in November and December in Ethiopia. Uh, yes, it's well underway, uh, but uh, the civilization uh, that uh, Biden is attempting to protect, along with the Republican Party as well, uh, is in decline. Uh, but they are kicking and screaming, and this is making them extremely dangerous, uh, not only to the uh, majority of the population around the world, but also uh, to people inside uh, of the United States as well. We see the rise of economic uncertainty, impoverishment, uh, racial tensions, uh, further exploitation, intensification of exploitation of the working class. And even among the capitalist class itself, uh, there is a tremendous amount of uh, consternation, uh, trepidation, and uncertainty. Uh, all you have to do is look at the uh, markets uh, 
and uh, the decline of the markets and uh, the criticisms uh, by leading financial institutions and multinational corporations against the Federal Reserve Bank uh, over how to deal with the inflationary spiral that's taking place right now in, in the United States and is impacting uh, the entire world. Uh, so this is a very interesting period uh, under which we're living, uh, but it's also a very dangerous uh, era as well. Now, that's a fact. I think it is a very sort of fraught moment geopolitically uh, at Biomia. And as such, I mean, what do you see as the role of, uh, you know, uh, movement people and progressive minded folks here in the U.S. that see all these things happening and see how the U.S. continues to operate both on the African continent, its role in instigating uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and all these sorts of things, and see that uh, the world very clearly wants to head in a different direction. I mean, I've just always felt that the movement inside the U.S. has a particular duty to really take these things up. And so from your view, uh, how should we be grappling with all of these different dynamics that are all sort of colliding and entangling with each other seemingly all at once? Yeah, we have a uh, clear and uh, definitive role to play uh, inside the United States. Uh, We have to, uh, first of all, break uh, with the notion uh, that the United States is somehow morally uh, superior to other peoples around the world. Uh, If we don't break with that notion, uh, then we won't be able to play the essential role that we need to play and transform forming the planet, you know, from a planet dominated uh, by U.S. imperialism to one uh, that has a more democratic uh, governance structure uh, internationally. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Abayomi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, September 26, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way you can get in touch with us here on the show. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's 2 Zero two five two one one three two zero. Our operators are standing by. You can also check out the show at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear and download the show at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. And today, as always, we are broadcasting live from Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B A 
M necessary. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash BAM necessary. But wherever you are in this world and however you hit us up, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, uh, the new family code in Cuba was approved after a referendum. Uh, reportedly, uh, the votes in favor of the new family code uh, referendum uh, got uh, 3.9 million votes, which is about 66.87% of the votes that were cast. And I'm going to uh, read just a little bit here from some reporting on Telesaur, where they say, quote, the family code, which reforms and expands the family law that was in force since 1975, contemplates equal marriage, surrogacy, the adoption of children by homosexual couples, the prohibition of child marriage and the promotion of comprehensive policies to address the gender violence. Uh, Miguel Diaz-Canal, the president of Cuba, called the family code, quote, a fair, necessary, updated and modern norm, which grants rights and guarantees to all people and to the diversity of families. So while basic democratic rights are under assault here in the United States, which proclaims to be, you know, uh, the, the fountainhead of uh, human rights and uh, democracy in the world, uh, uh, we're seeing these uh, really progressive reforms and uh, other things like this happening in countries like Cuba, which, you know, you and I are often told are uh, basically hell on earth and uh, are the worst places to be and that uh, we should never seek to, uh, uh, you know, have anything approaching that here ourselves, lest we find ourselves like them. Of course, that leaves out the overarching reality of the U.S.'s attack on Cuba. But be that as it may, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston and the author of dozens of books, including The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Horn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Horn, things continue to intensify and escalate as it pertains to the ongoing war in Ukraine. Uh, uh, Anthony Blinken, of course, the secretary of state, uh, has been discussing about how uh, the U.S. Uh, supplying weapons to Ukraine is a process that is, quote, ongoing, saying in an interview on 60 Minutes, whatever they put on the table is something we're going to look at to consider and we're going to give them our best judgment about what can be effective for them. At every step of the way, we have worked to make sure that the Ukrainians had in their hands what they needed to defend themselves and all of these sorts of things. Well, here recently, we've also seen uh, a speech from uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, where he seemed to make clear that uh, Russia was uh, prepared and equipped to uh, uh, deal with uh, uh, certain levels of attacks. And I actually want to read just a couple of paragraphs from that speech just to give an idea of not only how he's uh, thinking, but where the stage of things are. He said, the goal of that part of the West is to weaken, divide and ultimately destroy our country. They are saying openly now that in 1991, they managed to split up the Soviet Union. And now was the time to do the same to Russia, which must be divided into numerous regions that would be at deadly feud with each other. They devised these plans long ago. 
They encouraged groups of international terrorists and the Caucasus and moved NATO's offensive infrastructures close to our borders. They used indiscriminate Russophobia as a weapon, including by nurturing the hatred of Russia for decades, primarily in Ukraine, which was designed to become an anti-Russia bridgehead. They turned the Ukrainian people into cannon fodder and pushed them into a war with Russia, which they unleashed back in 2014. They used the army against civilians and organized a genocide, blockade, and terror against those who refused to recognize the government that was created in Ukraine as the result of a state coup. I would like to remind those who make such statements regarding Russia that our country has different types of weapons as well, and some of them are more modern than uh, the weapons NATO countries have. In the event of a threat to the territorial integrity of our country and to defend Russia and our people, we will certainly make use of all weapon systems available to us. This is not a bluff. And, Doctor, you know, I don't know how much more plainly uh, Putin could have stated that or really put uh, Russia's cards on the table in that way. I mean, he touched on a number of important contextual uh, notes that, frankly, are completely absent from both the consciousness and mainstream media coverage of the situation inside the United States. And it really feels like the very dangerous potentiality that many of us have been warning about from the outset of this very well uh, uh, may be drawing nearer and nearer if something does not happen soon. But I'm curious of your estimation of the war and these developments up until this point. Well, as you may recall, in March 2022, months ago, shortly after the so-called special military operation was launched, I wrote a piece in Black Agenda Report laying out some of the issues. And one point I wrote there remains relevant, and it needs to be responded to, which is that for hundreds of years now, ever since the Western European nations got sacked from plunder of the Americas and the enslavement of the Africans, they have faced what they used to refer to as a Russia question. That is to say, if you look at your map, you may be shocked about how much of European territory is actually Russia. And we're not even talking about the area east of the Ural Mountains. We're talking about the area west of the Ural Mountains. And so you had the quandary of these Western European nations who were allegedly global powers, but were not necessarily dominating the continent in which they resided. So Napoleon tried to solve this equation by invading and was defeated soundly. Then you had the so-called Crimea War of the 1850s, which in the short term, was a defeat for Russia and also helped to push it towards certain reforms, such as abolishing uh, serfdom, which is a kind of feudalism. And then we all know about what Hitler tried about 80-odd years ago. So today, the Russia question remains alive and well, and it does appear that the North Atlantic countries with the bulked-up United States of America is trying to resolve this question once and for all. But that leaves on the table another issue, another question, if you like, and that is why, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, with the ouster of the Communist Party, which we had thought was the primary goal, there was still an attempt to extend NATO to the borders of Russia. We had thought that it was the communist issue which was stirring NATO, but apparently not. And... Then the other question, which is going to be equally befuddling for imperialist analysts, assuming that they, like we, survived this century, 
is why after toppling the communists from power, they did not try to co-opt post-communist Russia into an alliance against the big enchilada, which is the People's Republic of China. Instead, they've driven them together, which is a prescription for disaster. And I think that that bespeaks the point that the imperialists overestimated the question of the fall of the Soviet Union. They thought it was mostly due to internal contradictions. I've maintained since 1991 that a major role was played by the global alliance, which not only included China, but Japan, South Korea, and not to mention most of the Western European countries. And so because they did not have a correct estimate that led to this bungle strategy of trying to start a brush fire in Ukraine, which has backfired. You see that the Russian ruble is not rubble, as Mr. Biden predicted. In fact, it's strengthened since February 2024 from the 70s to the dollar to 57. At the same time, the British pound is crashing. I recall when it was $2.40, excuse me, yeah, $2.40 to a pound. Now it's about parity. The euro is about parity. At the same time, even though you have the barrel of petroleum falling, the European countries have to buy that petroleum with dollars, which they don't necessarily have. And so you face the spectacle of many Europeans freezing in the dark. And I'm not sure if it was trolling or accurate when I read this account about how in St. Petersburg, Russia, they're considering warming the sidewalks at the same time that folks in Western Europe can hardly warm their homes. And so you have the prospect, perhaps, of those in posh, chic, tony suburbs of elite London uh, being forced to move to the sidewalks of St. Petersburg so that they won't freeze. Uh, this is the kind of result that a bungled imperialist strategy has delivered. That's a fact. And, you know, this is an aside, but, you know, this is uh, it reminds me of something you were you know, mentioning just excuse me a moment ago about just how geographically massive Russia is. And I mean, it's a fact that it sits both in the east and west, which in terms of uh, the Euro American axis, it, it I think causes this interesting response sometimes to where basically uh, the U.S. and the West likes to play fast and loose with the whiteness of Russia. And I'm thinking specifically of pieces like uh, a 2018 article in the Wall Street Journal that uh, it's called Russia's Turn to Its Asian Past. And the subhead says, as nostalgia surges for the Eastern conquest of Genghis Khan, Putin maps out his own empire. And the sort of animated uh, portrait, if you will, is one of Vladimir Putin in a suit with a helmet on with a plume and I think a spear in his hand. He's holding a shield. There's some arrows in his back and there's literally like an Asiatic horde behind him. And so it's just sort of fascinating thing to me about how when uh, the U.S. is set on, you know, the imperial uh, control of Russia, that it basically pulls their white card in order to do so. But you also raise 
how uh, the the war in Ukraine and this uh, kind of bungled imperial venture, Dr. Horn, is sending these serious ripple effects all around the world, particularly economically, and the fact that Europe is absolutely in store for a very cold winter. And we've already uh, been seeing uh, some large demonstrations and protests in Europe around just these issues. And I tend to think we will continue to see them. I mean, what is your estimation of of this social discontent that these European government governments brought about themselves by tailing Washington in the way that they are so accustomed. It just kind of blows my mind because it's like they're they're suffering all these consequences. And I'm not clear on what benefit they're really getting uh, uh, from this. And so, I mean, how do you see that aspect of it? Since the U.S. was was hell bent and is hell bent on isolating Russia, weakening Russia, to use the language of uh, Joe Biden. But I mean, slowly but surely here starting to feel like uh, uh, the blowback is uh, approaching. I think the a major beneficiary of this crisis in Europe uh, may be the estate of the silky voice, late crooner, Teddy Pendergrass, particularly his song. Turn off the light, light a candle. Because basically, that's what the Europeans are going to have to resort to. Why did they get to this point? I think that there was an over-reliance upon U.S. imperialism as a guarantor for world imperialism. Uh, Occasionally, you would hear comments from Paris, President Macron, speaking of NATO being brain-dead. But the fact is that Germany, the locomotive of the European Union, uh, like Japan, the loser during World War II, is still festooned with U.S. military base bases, which constrains sovereignty. In fact, the Ramstein base in Germany, for decades now, has been a major launching pad for U.S. adventures, uh, particularly in Afghanistan and Iraq, a major hospital where wounded warriors from the United States are treated. It's precisely in Germany, the Ramstein base. And so the Europeans, they basically were relying much too heavily upon world imper- U.S. imperialism, world imperialism, then in terms of Germany, they were really in a contradiction because at the same time, they were relying upon cheap energy from Russia and looking for markets in China. And now the United States has both nations in the crosshairs. The Economist, the conservative weekly out of London, had a striking piece in their current issue where they resuscitate what I had thought was the discredited Morgenthau plan, which is for the deindustrialization of Germany. Now, that was a plan in 1945 where there was a spirit of revenge against Berlin because of all the havoc and devastation it had created. And I know that there is still lingering anti-German sentiment uh, in London, but I was still shocked by the fact that that plan was resuscitated. So once again, what we're about to witness is a historic shift where the Western European countries and their U.S. allies, because after all, the United States is very heavily dependent on the Western European market, they're about to take a great leap backwards, whereas China, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, 
are about to engage in a great leap forward. Now, I think that the fallout will be what you see in Italy, neo-fascists surging to power. Uh, once again, uh, you can point the finger of accusation at Washington, not only in terms of seeking over the decades to destabilize the Italian Communist Party, once one of the strongest communist parties in the world, and it wasn't because they were close to Moscow, recall in the 1970s. They pioneered in the so-called Euro-communist strategy, which tried to distance itself from Moscow, just as their neighbor to the east, speaking of socialist Yugoslavia, as early as the 1940s under Marshal Tito, tried to do the same thing. It did not save them from uh, Washington's uh, evil misdeeds. And then we saw that in the 1970s, once again, as Christian Democratic leader Aldo Moro in Rome was seeking to make the historic compromise with the Italian Communist Party and bring them into power, he was kidnapped by ultra-leftists with the complicity, if not acquiescence, of U.S. imperialism, then executed. It's been the subject of a number of films, including Italian films. I would recommend the moral affair in that regard. And so you should not be shocked that as the left is weakened like a seesaw, the neo-fascists and the right begin to rise. You're about to see a similar result, I'm afraid to say, if we're not careful in these United States of America. Mm. Well, we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Dr. Gerald Horn. And Dr. Horn, a moment ago, you made a reference to uh, the recent election in Italy, which saw the rise of a right wing coalition being led by uh, Georgia Maloney of the Brothers of Italy Party. And Politico actually published a piece uh, about the election where they described uh, Maloney as, quote, uh, the most right wing government since Mussolini in Italy, which is quite a statement. And I was hoping you could say more about uh, just how this uh, uh, far right element was able to come to power in Italy. What do you think it means for, you know, that country and for Europe and sort of broader uh, trends in global politics? Well, first of all, your audience should not be misled by the criticisms of incoming Prime Minister Maloney by the leader of the European Union, speaking of Ursula von der Leyen, uh, it's a case of fees falling out, quite frankly. That is to say that uh, do not rush to Maloney's defense because she's being attacked by Brussels because Maloney and her party ran one of the most racist campaigns I've ever witnessed. In some ways, it would make the Ku Klux Klan blush. I mean, if you looked at her Twitter feed, you saw literally examples of black men supposedly sexually molesting Italian women in order to inflame sentiments. She was transmitting that kind of trash. Now, 
once again, we have to bring the focus back to U.S. imperialism, which, as you know, about a decade or so ago, helped to engineer the overthrow of the Gaddafi regime in Libya, which then led to a flood of Africans trying to cross the Mediterranean from North Africa, with the first port of call being Libya. That influx was then capitalized on by these right-wing populist politicians, neo-fascist politicians, like the Brothers of Italy. And so it's going to be hard times, I'm afraid, going forward for many of these Africans who are now in Italy. I should also say that you have a similar trend unfolding in Europe in general. You saw the elections in Sweden, where you also saw the rise to influence of neo-fascists. Once again, it's a direct result of the weakening of the left continentally, a strategic objective of U.S. imperialism for decades. Now, on the other hand, there might be a few not-so-negative signs, if I can use that phrase, because within Maloney's coalition will be Forza Italia uh, under the 85-year-old former prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, uh, who is a righteous, to be sure, uh, but also uh, during his previous administration, when he was in the catbird seat, uh, he was trying to reach out to Moscow. In fact, uh, I have uh, speculated uh, publicly that uh, I imagine that Berlusconi and those around him are sanctions busters. <laughs> that is to say, uh, aiding Moscow in terms of breaking the sanctions campaign. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Ursula von der Leyen was so sharp in her admonition of this incoming government. But in any case, uh, other than that, it's difficult to make anything positive. Uh, out of this neo-fascist turn, and once again, uh, watch for it arising in the United States of America. And one of the things we should be watching for is this. Uh, I, I happened to catch a few moments of the Mother Jones editor who resides in Washington speaking of David Korn and his new book, American Psychosis, which talks about the Republican Party and his sharp turn to the right, which I'm sure your audience needs to know briefing about. But like many U.S. analysts, he has the Republican leaders on the one hand, be it Trump, Kevin McCarthy, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and the masses that are dancing to that tune on the other, who rarely answer the question. Look at my book on Texas, people, and you will find that if fascism comes to the United States, it will have a mass base across the Euro-American working class and Euro-American middle class. And you should not see it as somehow accidental that so 75 million people uh, turned out to vote for Donald J. Trump, and his popularity does not seem to be declining appreciably, although uh, we'll get a glimpse of what that means in a few weeks on the first Tuesday in November. Well, we've got a caller on the line here. Wesley, tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, I had a question about the recent Cuban referendum. Um <clears throat> Uh, I'm pretty sure Cuba's been traditionally more comes to social issues conservative because of the whole Catholic influence. But seeing this happen is really hopeful for, I think, 
probably a lot of LGBTQ folks who live in countries like that are more socially conservative. So my question was, do you see what happened in Cuba as something that could happen in more, you know, traditionally socially conservative countries, as in things are progressing, times are changing? Or do you see it as more only possible because of the socialist government they have there where socialism progresses to the needs of people over time versus capitalism stays traditional and so forth and so on, not progressing, staying in the Stone Age on these social issues. And that's my question and wonderful show as always. And thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you, Wesley. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, yeah, you're right about sort of, um, you know, some of these uh, influences in countries, uh, uh, you know, like Cuba, not just the Catholic Church, but also some, you know, U.S. based evangelical churches that operate in countries like Cuba and different uh, places on the African continent and, and things like that as well. But uh, Dr. Horn, are your thoughts on this? Well, what we need to realize is that there was a certain inevitability uh, to this referendum. Recall that the daughter of former President Raul Castro was in the vanguard of uh, pushing this referendum. Uh, she has been pushing it for years. This is her stated profession. Uh, she has been trying to effectuate this change for years, and it has arrived. Uh, given the prestige that Cuba exerts hemispherically, I think the caller is correct to suspect that this referendum in Cuba will have knock-on effects uh, throughout the hemisphere, uh, particularly in these countries where the Catholic Church uh, still wills influence. And, of course, that is a good deal of Latin America. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, even within this conversation we're having, Dr. Horn, I'm thinking about the, you know, U.N. uh, uh, General Assembly that's been going on and just— some really interesting, uh, powerful and assertive statements that we're seeing from different governments. I mean, we saw a number of representatives uh, speak out against uh, the U.S. blockade on Cuba. Uh, uh, China asserted itself in terms of what it called an external interference of the U.S. as it pertains to Taiwan and all those uh, sorts of things. One uh, particular piece that stood out to me was a statement by Osman Saleh, who's, uh, I believe, a minister of foreign affairs for uh, uh, Eritrea. And he said in his speech to the assembly, quote, in reality, the much vaunted, quote, rules based international order represents a skewed set of duplicitous, asymmetric and non-consensual norms and regulations. The fact is, it was essentially designed to advance and safeguard the privileges of its principal architects to the exclusion of the majority of other nations and peoples. Its rather monolithic and condescending ideological perspective gives no room and space to historical context, distinct realities and cultures, and above all, to independent policy choices of other sovereign people and nations, which I think pretty well sums up um, a lot of the issues in terms of how the world is trying to grapple with and uh, overcome uh, the inhuman uh, contradictions of uh, U.S. world imperialism. But just sort of wondering what have been some of your main takeaways from this uh, General Assembly, Dr. Horn, and what you think it may imply about uh, uh, dynamics in uh, the geopolitical scene. Well, I was taken by the remarks of U.S. President Mr. Mr. Joseph Biden, Joseph R. Biden, who 
broached the idea of expanding the permanent members of the Security Council to include representatives from Africa, Asia, and Latin America. He did not mention whether they would be able to wield a veto, but I would assume that's part of the package. Of Brazil, there would seem to be uh, would seem to be the Latin American uh, candidate, uh, given the fact that it borders every country in South America and has the second largest population in the hemisphere, second to the United States of America. Uh, the fact that Lula da Silva may be returning to power, I'm not sure how that slices, except that you can probably expect an enlargement of the U.S. intelligence presence in Brazilia if that happens. With regard to Asia, it seems to be a no-brainer that India will get the nod, particularly since U.S. imperialism is relying so heavily upon India to act as a counterweight to China. And to a certain extent, this is China's own doing. And recall that in 1962, under the cover of the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis, China seized the opportunity to attack India. And I don't think that was a very wise or smart move. With regard to Africa, once again, uh, it'll come down to Nigeria and South Africa. I don't think that U.S. imperialism uh, trusts altogether the African National Congress and the South African Communist Party ally. Whereas with regard to Nigeria, uh, given the fractiousness that has existed between and amongst Hausa, Yoruba, and Igbo, amongst others, that seems to be made to order for manip- manipulation by U.S. imperialism, not to mention the fact that Nigeria has a larger economy. It's the most populous country on the African continent. But in any case, that proposal, in a sense, is a kind of Hail Mary pass, as they say in professional football in the United States, that it is a desperation maneuver. Washington feels that it needs backup as the economy economist signals that Germany is headed towards deindustrialization. So it's inviting others uh, to the top table. Uh, But quite frankly, that desperation, that desperate move, I don't think will work out. Yeah, that might be the case. That might be the case. And even uh, looking how we consider it, I mean, it it makes me want to swing back around to a conversation we're having a little earlier about the recent elections in Italy uh, and Sweden, which also, uh, uh, you know, uh, had an electoral victory in terms of this kind of loose coalition of uh, right wing parties that uh, did defeat what uh, I guess you could decidedly call a central left government there in uh, uh, the general elections, which I believe was a little earlier this month. And what I thought was interesting in Sweden, uh, you know, a far right French figure Marine Le Pen uh, even weighed in saying, quote, everywhere in Europe, people aspire to take their destiny back into their own hands. And, you know, when we look at these other trends, Dr. Horn, I mean, it really makes me wonder, how is it that we now are seemingly dealing with an encroaching uh, far white on a global scale. Certainly that's uh, a serious issue here on the, in the U S but in terms of how we're also seeing it ripple in different parts of, uh, of the world. I mean, uh, I mean, what do you think is responsible for that development? Well, the short answer would just be enlarging on what I said a moment or two ago, <laughs> a, a central objective of the preexisting epic, speaking of the cold war, was to destabilize socialist parties, communist parties, left-leaning trade unions in the United States that meant the marginalizing of left-leaning unions like the National Maritime Union, uh, once having second-in-command a black Jamaican, Ferdinand Smith, who was then deported back to his homeland during the height of the Red Scare. 
It meant sidelining the West Coast stevedores, longshore workers, uh, under the leadership of an Australian migrant, Harry Bridges, who the United States spent a small fortune trying to deport back to his native Australia. It meant sidelining Paul Robeson, uh, driving his income from the six figures to the low four figures, trying to jail W.E.B. Du Bois. I mean, you, you can't have that sort of a crusade unfolded without it having impact. And it has that impact because it wasn't just in the United States or in black America where this harebrained policy was pursued. It was pursued all over the world. And so, like a seesaw, once you saw the left going into eclipse, there was a disruption of the political ecosystem, and you begin to see the rise of the right. And that is what's happening in Italy, in Sweden, that is what is happening in the United States of America. That is what happened in the UK with the ascension of Boris Johnson and now Liz Truss, who is going to drive the economy further into the ditch. That's what you see in France with the ascension of President Macron. And so, once again, one does not have to be an oracle or a seer to predict what's going to happen once you begin trying to destabilize the left domestically and globally. Definitely. Well, you have another caller on the line here. Mo, tell us what's on your mind. Thanks. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I was going to actually ask what Dr. Horn just uh, shared. In other words, the where is the black community? And I was going to also put that in the context of the likes of Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois. So essentially, you know, part of that, uh, he asked or answered my question, but, I, I, you know, at least when you had the war in the Persian Gulf, there were those from the left that offered a different point of view. So simply, I would just like to know, what, what is that pivotal point? I'm currently reading you mentioned earlier uh, Black Agenda Report, and I'm currently reading the uh, Clint Ford's uh, collection of his essays. And actually, the first time was during the uh, prior administration, the Obama administration, was the first time that the African-American community was not the community of peace. For the first time, they supported the war in Syria, uh, or the, there, were, there was a higher percentage, I should say, unlike any other time since polling data was recorded. So I, I, I just would like for two things to have Dr. Horn elucidate on some of the points that I raised or just to kind of, I guess, further expand on that. And what was the pivotal point, particularly as it relates to the African-American community, which is totally different from the African community and diaspora, and, and uh, you know, we've always been the voice of humanity, and unfortunately, we're not now. So, again, thanks for taking my call, and hopefully my question is somewhat understandable. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Mo. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, pardon the expression, and please reprimand me if it's inappropriate, but there's an old saying that in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed eye, one are often dominant. And as the United States has moved to the right, the black community 
has moved to a degree to the right, but overall, it's still the community that votes more against the right by a rate of nine to one or eight to two, seven to three. If we could get some of these other demographics to vote like the black community, this world might be on the verge of paradise. (laughs) I don't say that in an exaggerated sense. And so I'm not even sure that with regard to the Libya campaign, where you had a lot of folks on the left who were not black, who went to the okie doke and supported the overthrow of Gaddafi, part of the issue with the black community is that it has been oftentimes silent on foreign policy, which means that historians looking back to 2010-2011 may not be able to find that many black voices cheering for the overthrow of Gaddafi, but you won't find that many black voices opposing it either. So I think that it would be a mistake, because I, I, I see this tendency already whereby there is a, a, a tendency in the United States, which has deep historic roots, to try to scapegoat the black community for the country as a whole moving to the right. And that's something, for example, when Larry Elder, you recall him, this the black guy who was tried to be the front man for the recall of Governor Newsom in California, a right-wing populist, euphemistically. I had folks interrogating me on the radio as to whether or not this was sort of a sign of things to come. But I haven't heard anybody try to interrogate me about Lieutenant Governor Winston Sears in Virginia, a black woman, or Brooke Jenkins, the Jell the district attorney in San Francisco, the first person for the recall of Chesa Boudin, a tribune of the left, before he was recalled. So we have to be very careful with these analysis. Otherwise, we'll wind up uh, playing into someone else's game. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Dr. Gerald Horn is here. And uh, Dr. Horn, a little earlier in our conversation, you uh, we, we've been talking sort of broadly about, you know, different far right elements rising uh, in different parts of the globe and the threat that that poses for the U.S. And you made reference to your uh, recently published book on Texas and about how fascism in the United States uh, would have to have a, a mass base at this particular juncture um, uh, uh, in its history. And I was hoping you could say more about that and just what that means, because to me, it 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 gestures towards a broader reality that I really hope progressive minded people and movement people are paying attention to. And that's what appears to be a creeping all out assault on basic democratic rights here in the U.S. 
And I think the 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 overturning of Roe v. Wade was kind of the first shot across the bow. And one of the first things that we saw following that decision was uh, Justice Clarence Thomas uh, uh, basically implying about how this could have implications for gay marriage, something that uh, I think people were warning about even before Roe was overturned. And so I feel like uh, Dr. Horn, in a number of ways, we're living in a moment where we're seeing um, uh, decades of right wing quietly maneuvering in the background, building power, uh, stacking the Supreme Court and and other uh, legislatures and things like that uh, around the country to try to engage in an all-out attack on some of the most fundamental rights here uh, in the U.S. And so when you say that uh, fascism here in this country would need a mass base, I sort of feel like uh, uh, that, that factors right in. And so how do you see that kind of aspect of things um, impacting how these dynamics are uh, uh, sort of unfolding in uh, the U.S. at this point and, uh, you know, some of the potentialities? Well, I mean, first of all, if you look at how this country, this territory was seized, it was seized as a result of a mass base, a collaboration across class lines between and amongst Europeans of vast wealth and little wealth. Go back to the first attempted settlement in what they call North Carolina in the 1580s. If you look at my book on Texas, which is a former Mexican territory, which secedes from Mexico, not least because Mexico, under a president of African descent, Vincente Guerrero, is moving towards abolishing slavery. Sam Houston, Stephen F. Austin, the other freebooters who then affixed their names to major cities weren't having it, and they revolt and secede, just as in 1776, you had real estate speculators like George Washington, who secedes from the British Empire because Britain seemed to be getting wobbly on the bedrock issue of enslavement of Africans and the question of fighting the Native Americans to take their land. And there was class collaboration. If you look, I, I, just, I just read an article about, you know, by one of these so-called scholars who's marveling at these land-grant universities in the United States, the University of Wisconsin, Madison, Ohio State, the University of Nebraska, how wonderful they were. Now, of course, they're all taken from Native Americans, the land, that is, and then they were exclusive. They didn't let Negroes into these universities until there was mass global pressure. And so then people seem shocked and surprised that Donald J. Trump did 75 million votes in 2020 Although the implicit message from the base is that they want to go back. That's the import of the slogan, Make America Great Again. Uh, go back to the time when there was unvarnished, unalloyed, a uh, so-called Euro-American or white privilege, and the rest of us were slaves or slated for liquidation. And so until we can get a handle on the accurate and true history of this country, we're going to be lost in the sauce. Yeah, I think that's a fact. And I really want to sort of dig in into how Dr. Horn, and this is going to sound obvious, but I think, you know, it isn't necessarily so from the surface. And what I'm speaking to is sort of, you know, the centrality of white supremacy 
in this right wing campaign because the uh, the, you know, black people gaining the right to vote in this country was a real defeat for uh, the right. And in terms of how things changed and how socially it became, you know, no longer acceptable to be kind of openly and uh, vociferously racist. And while the right wanted to mount um, a kind of counterattack. To that, I mean, the black American struggle was too strong, you know, in this period, you know, roughly, if we want to say between 1955 and 1970, you know, this sort of civil rights through the black power area uh, era domestically, along with ongoing revolutions and national liberation struggles uh, internationally, basically made it impossible for the right to try to carry out an attack explicitly against uh, black America and the gains that we had made. Therefore, they had to seize upon this issue that was kind of a non-issue for the right at that point, and that was uh, abortion rights. I mean, I think you'll find right-wingers in this country to this day who actually, you know, support abortion rights. But it became a kind of wedge issue, uh, uh, it seems, and a kind of uh, means to try to gain momentum to go after all these other things. And so, I mean, how do you see uh, uh, racism sort of continuing to... uh, you know, be the chief motivator and activator of this right wing assault, Dr. Horn, when, you know, by all superficial appearances, uh, it's like they're trying to make it about something else, about quote unquote life or the children or something like this. You know what I mean? Well, I would say it's all of the above. I mean, certainly through a global movement, we were able to force the right wing to move away from the more egregious aspects of Jim Crow. Uh, That was the import of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which, by the way, may be made illegitimate in the upcoming Supreme Court term. But certainly we would be remiss if we ignored the question of patriarchy. That becomes more complicated because we also know that a majority of Euro-American women actually voted for Mr. Trump. We also know, because of research, research, including in my book on the 16th century, that when London began to move towards importing enslaved Africans into London itself, uh, some of the early, quote, beneficiaries, unquote, uh, were women, European women, who wanted these so-called labor-saving devices, that is to say this household help. Uh, provided by uh, black men and black women and black children. So the patriarchy issue remains in the forefront. Uh, We'll see how resonant it is, whether or not the Kansas referendum uh, on abortion rights uh, a few weeks ago was actually a straw in the wind or whether it was a one-off. I would like to think that it's the former, not the latter, But in a country as right-wing as this one, a country based upon genocide and mass enslavement, uh, you would be foolish to assume that progressive forces will always prevail. We oftentimes need a push, wind in our sails from the international community. Yeah, and... You know, on on that kind of uh, uh, similar note, I mean, I think, as ever, it just sort of evidences 
the crucial need for, you know, a broad based mass movement of poor working and oppressed people that um, are frankly going to pull humanity back from the brink. Because when we take a look at the sort of a colliding issues of war, the climate, the economy, all of these things that frankly are consigning countless people around the world to, uh, I mean, a social death and sometimes and oftentimes a literal death because so many basic things are made unavailable. And I really do feel that uh, there are more people that are coming more and more aware of this. But as I always say, we cannot rely on spontaneous consciousness to really achieve change just all by itself. Like we just hope people wake up one day and get it and just kind of organize themselves. No, we have to be intentional about number one, highlighting this issue, highlighting the fact that uh, we are sort of standing on the prefaces of what could potentially be a serious far right surge here in the United States that because of its mass base, also has, you know, no small amount of, excuse me, street muscle from these different far right groups and militia groups and things like that on top of all the apparatuses of um, uh, state violence that we know the U.S. has as its disposal. And so I really feel like we're in a moment politically in this country, Dr. Horn, that, you know, it's 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 dangerous. It's intense. It can be fraught. But also feel that nestled within that is an amazing amount of potential. But I'll say again, uh, that potential will just remain potential if movement people aren't active in building the kind of organization and movement that is needed to address these things and bring our class in uh, as much as we can. You know what I mean? And so it, it just seems that uh, that aspect of things is going to be so important uh, as we move forward. Uh, now that it's being made clear that, uh, you know, imperialism is not backing off the gas anytime soon, but quite the contrary seems to be intent on putting the pedal to the metal. Well, as we used to say back in the day, potential means by definition you haven't done it yet. And so uh, I would not want to rain on the parade, but at the same time, you have an uphill climb in this country. Uh, we should not make any bones about it. Uh, if I were to make one suggestion besides the obvious, which is organize, 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 it would be to organize not only domestically, uh, but globally and transnationally. Uh, we began by talking about Cuba. We need to have uh, more confabs with our Cuban friends. I've even suggested that we need the organizing of a group similar to CISPAS. Recall in the 1980s, the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, uh, which was based in the United States, which was in solidarity with the El Salvadorian people and the U.S. intervention in their homeland. Uh, we now need a Committee in Solidarity with the people of the United States. We need to call an international conference, perhaps in Cuba, perhaps in Canada, perhaps in South Africa, perhaps in Cyprus, to organize such an international organization uh, that would focus on anti-black racism in the first instance, that would launch a series of demonstrations at U.S. diplomatic missions abroad, at U.S. corporations abroad, the Facebook headquarters in London, for example, the uh, Apple offices in China, for example. And so we need to internationalize this struggle because, as I've written, 
And as many of your audience know, that's the way we were able to break the chains of slavery. That's the way we were able to escape the more gruesome aspects of Jim Crow. And that will be our saving grace in 2022 going forward. Yeah, I think that's a fact. And I think that's why, you know, political education and understanding of history is so important and why, (laughs) from the standpoint of the ruling class, it's important to propagandize and to give a skewed idea of history to where even though we may be taught about things like slavery, we may be taught about women's suffrage, uh, uh, the right for black folks to vote and all of that. We're taught about these things as example of America's greatness. But yet what is removed is sort of the importance of organized struggle, which is precisely the thread that connects them all. And I could agree more with what you're saying about uh, how we have to internationalize this um, this movement. And I feel like we saw a really good example of that just this past weekend as, you know, the People's Summit for um, Democracy, which was originally organized um, in resistance to the uh, Summit of the Americans by the Organization of American States and Joe Biden keeping out countries like Cuba and Nicaragua and others. But they had um, an event just this past weekend at the historic Riverside Church in uh, Harlem, New York, where they had representatives from uh, Cuba and Venezuela talking about the the reality, the situation of their countries, expressing solidarity with uh, Nicaragua. Uh, excuse me, not Nicaragua. Uh, Puerto Rico was mentioned. Uh, I believe uh, Eritrea was as well. All these sorts of things. And so these are organizers and and academics and movement people from uh, uh, different elements of the U.S. movement in conversation with uh, these different uh, leaders and figures from these revolutionary governments that I think go a long way to strengthen those bonds internationally that we're going to need to accomplish just what we're saying we need to accomplish. And when you talk about the uphill battle here in the United States, Dr. Horn, I agree 100 percent that we should be realistic about that. Uh, Anyone who listens to this show knows that I'm a huge proponent, uh, nearly an evangelist of uh, a revolutionary, excuse me, optimism, because that's what's going to be uh, what what propels us forward. But we should make no bones about the fact that it is going to be quite difficult. And if it was easy, we wouldn't call it struggle. Right. And uh, Kwame Torre was fond of telling us that, you know, revolutionaries don't look for easy tasks. We look for difficult tasks. We have to bear in mind that we are literally taking up the task of changing the United States of America completely, removing uh, the capitalist system that has bedeviled all of us for these past uh, few centuries, overturning that system into a new system, one that is people-centered instead of profit-centered, and that's not going to be a small task. But it is imperative, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of humanity as we know it. And because of all those pressing issues I mentioned before, that is not an exaggeration. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thank Dr. Gerald Horn so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.